welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. want to start with by reading that translation just out of the like off the top sure so the summer has now passed as if it had never come within its shelter warmth yet it isn't enough all that might have come true like a five-edged leaf fluttered into my hands yet it isn't enough neither evil nor good has visited in vain everything sparkled and was light yet it isn't enough. Life took all under its wing, provided for and protected. I have been truly blessed, yet it isn't enough. The leaves did not burn, branches were not broken off, the day clear as glass, yet it isn't enough. This is a poem by Arkady Tarkovsky, Andrei Tarkovsky's father, and Tarkovsky the Younger was sure to include it, in Stalker, there's an episode where the Stalker recites the poem. In, in the film, it's supposedly a poem by a now-deceased Stalker named Porcupine, who we learn a little bit more about right at the end of the film. And I should point out also that that translation was provided by my friend Tim Dunn, a pianist and composer and a very interesting fellow and also, apparently, a super fan of our show. So, hey, Tim, good looking out. So let's start with that poem. That poem, when I first encountered it, the first time I saw Stalker, actually I can't remember what was the first occasion. I think it was watching it with a friend of mine who was a huge Tarkovsky fan back when I was, I don't know, in my early mid-twenties. And this poem particularly caught me right between the eyes. It found a chink in my armor. It got in somehow. What do you think about it, J.F.? I love the poem. The selection of images that the poem brings forward is very similar to the type of image image you find in Stalker. There's this weird um, exploration of that liminal zone between how the self apprehends creation, a world, a mysterious world, not of our making, and how the mind wants something from it that it doesn't give us. And yet... All those things, all those images, the those those images of nature, those images of time passing, those those that feeling, that kind of embodied feeling of existence and the world that it that it involves, all those things kind of like are showing us something we don't see. Strangely enough, there's always more. There's always there's something more we're looking for within that. So the poem seems very apropos from that perspective. 
but I, I confess I have not given it any thought whatsoever till now. I can speak only from a personal standpoint why the poem snuck up on me. That it's a poem that really perfectly captures a kind of lamentation, a lamentation in the heart, in the very sunlit crystalline heart of joy or of satisfaction, of accomplishment, of achievement. The worm in the apple, the flaw, you know, the flaw in the light, the flaw in the, uh, uh, the flaw in the world. To name check a rather different film, the The Matrix from 1999. One of my favorite bits of that film is where the agent, Agent Smith, is talking to Morpheus, and he's explaining how the Matrix came to be and how actually the first generation of the Matrix they tried to make a perfect world for human beings. And the first kind of crop of human beings to be plugged into the matrix just rejected it en masse, just spontaneously unplugged from the consensus illusion that they were being fed. Because human beings will put up with anything, but what they won't put up with is happiness. And I remember thinking, that's pretty sharp, because <laughs> it's true. At least it's true in my life. Uh, you know, this is one reason why I'm so skeptical of anybody who claims to be able to tell you how to be happy. The problem is that happiness itself has a flaw. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, the, the, it's like there's no way to take that worm out of the apple either. It's not like you can root around in the bin and find an apple that doesn't have a worm in it. It is the nature of this particular apple to be wormy. And that's kind of, I don't know, I find that interesting. And I think that the most obvious reading is to read the voice of the poem as the voice of the poet, of the human being, and to read the, the sentiment or the affect communicated by the poem as, uh, as something about the human condition. Another thing that came to me as you were reading the poem, and something I, I feel when I watch Stalker, is that this melancholy that can't stop at one thing that has to keep asking for more is it's a, it's it's present in nature itself in a sense nature is never satisfied with its own creations it's got this built-in transience that forces it to always transform as though it's trying to get to some point as though it's chasing some telos but of course never reaches it you know, like NASA or some space agency released like the sound of planets and of like deep space. Have you ever heard those kind of sonic translations no. of these sound waves that are inaudible to humans, but that? Well, they're yeah. I mean, they're they're vibrational. They're they're regular vibrations, so they have a there's you can assign them a pitch, but it's not like they're actually making any sound because no, there's no there's carrier no there's no carrier medium for it and blah blah blah. But yeah, right. But theoretically, I, I remember reading somewhere that black holes emit a B-flat 50 octaves below human hearing or something like that. Yeah, so that sort of thing. When you listen to those um, sonic, let's call them translations of these vibrations, there's that incredible deep plaintiveness or melancholy in it that it's easy to just put it all at this end of the wedge and say, oh, that's just our own impression of it. 
mm-hmm. our own judgment on it. Mm-hmm. But it's almost, it's so universal that sometimes one gets the impression that, that, that this deep melancholy that prevents absolute happiness, that makes it an absurd idea, is, is encoded into nature, into the universe itself. I find that that touches on a key theme of Stalker, which is that liminal zone between, zone literally, that liminal zone between nature and culture, between the human and the non-human, between right. the world without us and the world with us. So very briefly, before we go much further, we should probably give a quick overview of the plot of Stalker, because I can't assume that everybody listening to this has watched it. It's a film by Andrei Tarkovsky, probably the greatest Soviet director since Eisenstein, perhaps the greatest Soviet director ever, died in 1986, I want to say. Was not a terribly prolific artist. I think he only filmed seven feature films. Almost all of them are quite long. They're all about like three hours long or longer. And they're famous for being very very slow. Tarkovsky is really well known for doing camera work where the camera kind of creeps along for minutes at a time in long, unbroken shots where a lot of scenes are set up almost statically, where you will have, for example, a landscape that's just held for several minutes and there are tiny human figures in it who are doing something, creeping across it, walking across it in some way or whatever. But his films are full of longueur, and they often give the feeling of a vast, almost echoingly empty space that human beings find themselves adrift in. Stalker itself is based on a book, a novel, by the Strugatsky brothers, and it's called Roadside Picnic. And the title of the book comes from an idea that a scientist in the novel sort of offers that You know, if we were to go on a roadside picnic, perhaps we would leave behind some trash, paper plates, crumpled wax paper, some rinds of sandwiches. Maybe the car that we used to drive over there has an oil leak, so we left like a little tiny puddle of oil, et cetera, et cetera. You know, like you, you leave some traces of your presence behind and you don't think about it at all. And then you get back in the car and you drive home and... Meanwhile, all the little animals that live in the place where you took the picnic, they've been, they've retreated in terror to their various holes and hiding places and have watched nervously from afar these incomprehensible rites of these uh, large bipedal creatures that have visited their home. And then when those bipedal creatures drive off, the animals creep out from their holes and investigate, and they find these objects whose purpose they can't even begin to fathom. They can't begin to guess. The animals might drag some of these things back, like maybe a crow would find an old button and bring it back to its nest, the way crows like to do. But they wouldn't understand what these objects were for. Maybe some of these objects would end up killing them. That wouldn't be because the human beings wanted the animals to die. It would just be because there's a complete lack of communication between the human beings and the animals. So, like, you imagine some dumbass who leaves a a six-pack collar behind, just litters and leaves a six-pack collar behind. And, you know, a poor animal gets its neck stuck in one of the six-pack rings and chokes to death. 
Well, nobody intends that, but it happens when you have these different species of radically incommensurate uh, orders of cognition and understanding living side by side. Well, this is a metaphor for this alien visitation where aliens have come and gone fairly quickly and left behind a heap of junk and nobody has a slightest clue what any of it's for. Now, in the novel Roadside Picnic, it's very oriented to artifacts, to alien technology, to weird things that people find in the zone. The zone is an area that's been polluted and made uninhabitable, and it's strewn with these alien artifacts. The state tries to keep people out, but there's a small determined group of men who call themselves stalkers, and they manage to sneak into the zone. They learn where the traps are hidden. They learn all the secret dangers of the zone. And they're able, more or less, to wend their way through the zone, find objects, and sneak them back out and sell them for vast sums to, I don't know, various interested buyers, right? Now, they do this despite the fact that it's enormously dangerous work, that almost every stalker dies horribly and surreally from some overlooked danger of the zone. Even if they don't, their children are all monstrously deformed. The stalkers themselves seem to kind of go crazy after a while. There's a strange effect where a stalker, or in fact anybody from a place that's adjacent to a zone, if they emigrate, if they move to another city, all of a sudden, a series of catastrophic accidents will befall the residents of that city. So there's a sort of sense of both the kind of crass capitalistic exploitation of the zone, but then the zone always remains a kind of a, an impenetrable mystery. That's kind of the that's kind of the book. Now Tarkovsky's setting of it is in true Tarkovskyan fashion, it's a lot slower. Not a hell of a lot actually happens in it. A lot of the plot that you find in Roadside Picnic, almost all of it was cast aside, was ignored by Tarkovsky. He kept a few motifs. For example, there's a point in Stalker where this party of these two men who hire a stalker to go into the zone, they are almost at their goal, but they have one last gauntlet to run. And it's this, it's a tube, like a tunnel. It's called the meat grinder. Now, in the book, there's also a meat grinder, but, you know, you find out what it actually does, which is that it will grab whoever is walking in it and twist them like you wring out a dishcloth and grind their body to pieces. In Tarkovsky's film, you only find out that that tunnel is called the meat grinder afterwards, and it doesn't do anything. So all you have is like, I don't know, maybe five minutes of these three guys slowly walking down this decaying tunnel. And that's a pretty telling way that Tarkovsky uses source material. He'll take an elusive idea, but whereas in the novel it's used for a fairly uh, recognizable sci-fi effect, gives you a spectacular death of one of the characters, in Tarkovsky's film you almost sort of get the feeling he's interested in these things, but not, he's not interested in them as, uh, as things that you can show. 
They're interesting as ideas, like the meat grinder is invoked rather than experienced. And that's fairly typical of the way Tarkovsky's using motifs from the book. He'll pick up bits and pieces. Or a much better example is his treatment of monkey. So in this story, there's a stalker and he has a wife and a child and the child is named Monkey. Now in the film, she just looks like this normal child. We're told she doesn't have legs, even though we can clearly see that she has legs. We're told that the zone has deformed her in some way, but we only realize at the very end what the nature of that deformation is. She, she has psionic powers. We see her at the very end of the film moving some glasses down a table with her mind. The one truly kind of supernatural or paranormal thing you see in the entire film. But it's worth noting that in the novel, the stalker's daughter is called the monkey because she literally turns into a monkey. And in the book, the implication is that stalkers live with this because at the end of the day, they can't say no to the money. All these profiteers who are taking stuff out of the zone for their own personal uses, you know, you can't say no to that kind of money. And there's also a sort of a bleak uh, implication that these stalkers are sort of like the oppressed workers everywhere. They have no choice. That's what the work that they are left to do by their society. But in the film, you get the impression that the, whatever hardships the stalker and his family put up with, they put up with it not for financial reasons, but almost the exact opposite for, as it were, spiritual ones. So what Tarkovsky does is he takes this idea of a zone, a place where human beings can't live, a place that is unpredictably chaotic and destructive, a place that you cannot possibly survive unless you have a guide. And even the guide might die unpredictably and horribly at any time. You kept that idea, but Tarkovsky's zone is almost unbelievably beautiful, eye-wateringly beautiful, stunningly gorgeous. And there is something about it that is, it's inimical to human life, but at the same time, it is the only place where the stalker can be happy. It's the only place where he can be, truly be a human being. And to me, Tarkovsky's very free adaptation of that conceit of the Strugatskys, that to me is a, a beautiful, beautiful thing. it is important to kind of think about it in relation to the novel. Maybe I think that just because I actually went to the trouble of reading the novel. Not a great novel. I'm sorry. I just don't think it's that good. Um, the film is way, way better. Uh, and I think it's better partly because it takes this super interesting idea of the zone, but it does more with it. It makes it far more resonant. Yeah, well, it does exactly what art does as opposed to artifice, I would argue. Okay, well, we'll get to that afterwards, actually. Before we do that, I'd like to just talk about the plot of the film. So the movie, just it's very, very simple. There, there, There's this stalker. He's uh, one of those guys who takes people into the, into the zone, to specifically to this one room in the zone that is said to make wishes come true. 
And uh, he takes on two clients. One is referred to as the writer. The other one is called the professor. The professor is a physicist. The writer seems to be some kind of thinker, essayist kind of writer. Like a public intellectual. Yeah, public intellectual. We get the sense that he is celebrated... Uh, that he get you know we see him with an attractive woman who he is drunkenly invited along to the zone. Mm-hmm. We get yeah. the feeling that he he lives in high society and yet is, finds it a very unsatisfying life. Right. He reminds me of Will Self, actually, British writer. Huh. And um and the so the stalker takes these two clients into the zone, and the film just follows their journey. It's interesting to talk about the novel because there are technical reasons, I think, why Tarkovsky's vision of the zone is much richer than the novels. Because one thing that genre does, real genre films, genre novels, one thing it does is it takes for granted the assumptions of its time. So in Roadside Picnic, we all know what a human being is. We all know what aliens are. And then, therefore, the the boundaries between the characters and their world are very clear. But in Tarkovsky, not just in Stalker, but in all of his films, the boundaries between the self and the world are not clear at all. I think there are very clear metaphysical reasons why he couldn't make Roadside Picnic as an artist. Because what is truly alien to us is what questions our most fundamental assumptions. And a bunch of artifacts strewn about that have these crazy magical effects, like turn, turn kids into monkeys and that sort of thing, that's one type of weird, but it's not as weird as the magical effect that would make you question the very boundary between yourself and the world or between right. ta- between past and future and present. Mm-hmm. Those are the truly alien things. And one of the moves that Tarkovsky makes that I think are absolutely brilliant in Stalker is that the quote unquote alien artifacts that are strewn about the zone are actually all just human artifacts. That's um, right the ruins of, of factories and uh, vehicles and that sort of thing. And there, these ruins, these human ruins, which were, I mean, these are buildings that were abandoned because of this event that created the zone. Um, these structures are now overgrown. They're being swallowed up by nature, which is freely kind of taking its place again. And just there's this Edenic quality to the, to the zone. It's like the Garden of Eden return. So you get this feeling as you're following these characters into the zone that you're both at, the, at one and the same time at the end of time, at the end of the world, and also at the beginning of time. Yeah. Um, so right in the imagery of the film, like just encoded right into it, is this sense of the eternal, the sense of the untimely, you know, a sense of the time isn't what we think it is. And the way the zone manifests, you know, kind of uh, magically or surreal, the way that the zone fucks with reality in the film, everything, it's all, it all happens through the cutting of the film itself. So it's never something you see on the screen. It's never like, uh, like in the recent film, Annihilation, which is kind of a, a kind of a weird remake of the zone, of a stalker in a sense. Yeah, we should talk um, about it a little bit. We will, yeah. In Annihilation, you'll have things like like uh, a mutant crocodile will come out, or you know, like or a uh, mutant bear, a mutant bear that that digests or incorporates the consciousness of its prey, that sort of thing. Monsters, in that sense. Yeah. You don't have any of that in Stalker. What you have instead is this slow, destabilizing, unhinging power 
that basically pulls the rug right out from under your feet where you don't even know where you are or when you are anymore. There's a point where they, one of the, the professor loses his knapsack or forgets his knapsack in a spot, but because there's this very clear series of moves you, that the stalker makes, makes them do in order to, to, to navigate the zone, because he's got all these systems, like he's, he throws these metal bolts in front of them and that they have to walk one at a time towards the bolts. And there, there are all these rules and the rules keep changing as to how one navigates this place. Uh, so the, the professor forgot his knapsack and it, he can't go back to get it. But then in the next scene, the, the landscape changes. Suddenly there's a waterfall where there wasn't one before. And the two other characters lose the professor and then they find him again. And they're back at the spot where the knapsack was, but they're like, it's impossible. The weird happens off screen in a sense. So you're only seeing the effects. You're never seeing the weird things themselves. That's right. Um, and, and that makes the film much more unnerving and wonderful in my, in my mind than a typical science fiction film, which clearly lays out the conceptual framework of its world so that one can then just put the book down and go back to the way things were. In, in Stalker, I think there's like a, there's a before you've seen Stalker and an after they've seen Stalker. It's like it's like dropping LSD. You know, it's like mm-hmm. you lose a kind of virginity when you see Stalker. And it's because of these choices that Tarkovsky made about how he interpreted what alien means and what truly a true encounter or an encounter with the truly alien would entail. Um, and that's what makes the film so fascinating to me. Now, it's quite possible to come to this film and find it to be just utterly boring. I mean, I think some people would look at it as being, I mean, it it is, as I say, very slow. But quite apart from that, you know, just what you've described, we never see any of the marvels. Almost all science fiction and fantasy is, gives us a world or a setting or a premise in order then to show us the marvels that result from that premise. So we imagine a world where... I don't know. Mountains can fly. Well, then we're going to see the flying mountains, right? Actually, that's the James Cameron movie, Avatar. Uh, Give me a premise uh, so that that will then allow me to see a tree a mile high and mountains that float and blah, blah, blah. Tarkovsky doesn't do that at all. Uh, He's just not interested in showing you marvels. He's interested in showing you totally normal things that are touched from within by the marvelous. But, But that's from a certain point of view, like you, it needs you to complete it. Like you need to put in a little bit of work. You need to imagine yourself into that space. The zone, as Tarkovsky shows it to us, is just a field of potentiality. And you have to be the one that makes the potential. You, you're the one that has to realize the potential in a way. At least that's how I see it. Otherwise, it actually reminds me of a really funny gag on the old SCTV show. Did you ever watch that show? Yeah, I did. You know, you know Count Floyd. Yep. Yeah, Count <laughs> Floyd is for those of you who've never watched SCTV. SCTV is a very funny sketch comedy show from the very end of the seventies, very beginning of the eighties, about a, a bad, like a really crappy regional Canadian TV channel. And one of the shows they have is monster horror thriller chiller theater, hosted by Count Floyd, who's just their news anchor, but he dresses up in a vampire costume and howls like a werewolf. He shows scary movies, and uh, he keeps, and the station keeps giving him shit movies that aren't scary, and he keeps trying to pretend 
that they're scary. And then finally, I think, what was it? It was like a European art film. And then just seeing Count Floyd trying and failing to pretend that what you just saw was really scary. Yeah. Oh, wasn't that scary? Oh, I got scared, kids. Oh, all right, that wasn't scary. The movie wasn't scary. Ingmar Bergman, who booked Bergman? Who booked that film? If this is that kind of a movie where you're just like, oh, that's some real scary stuff, kids. No, it's not. It's not scary at all. It's not it's not even unsettling on its own. Annihilation is scary as shit, at least in parts. And I'm not bagging on Annihilation. I'm not saying like, oh, it's a lowbrow version of what Tarkovsky is trying to do. I think despite the fact that there's some real thematic similarities, I think they're trying to do fundamentally different things. They're both worthy things, but, you know, it's funny, although I guess it's a science fiction film, I don't think of Stalker as a science fiction film. It's just a Tarkovsky film. Well, it's not science fiction because it's not uh, predicated on scientific principles, which is the definition of science fiction. Science fiction takes science... Yeah, it's one definition. Well, it, it is the technical definition, Um and that's what makes Star Wars not science fiction, but rather science fantasy or space opera. So it depends how we want to define our terms. There's a way you could define science fiction, obviously, that stalker that would include stalker. It's been called a science fiction film, and it is, in a sense, a science fiction film. But it's a science fiction film about the aporia of science. It's a science mm. fiction film about the point where rational thought fails. So it's like... In a sense, it's the opposite of Annihilation, because Annihilation is a film exploring how DNA is capable of endless, limitless transformations, so that anything's possible in Annihilation, mm -hmm. but always because of the laws, probabilistic laws of DNA. So, whereas mm -hmm. in Stalker, the premise is that something is possible, and that the possible... It and we have no idea why. Yeah, and, and there's no rationalizing it. There's no way to make sense of it after the fact to say, oh, yeah. it's because the DNA of the plants in the zone are emitting, making the plants emit this pheromone, you know, like that's science yeah. fiction. Uh, Stalker is yeah. not science fiction. It's, it's, uh, it's more akin to something like, like fantasy, but in another sense, it's very close to something like myth, which follows a logic of dreams. Maybe that's where the line lies between, let's call it visionary art and and other kinds of art. And that, that's what makes Stalker, I think, uh, yeah, it won't give you the emotion of fear because it doesn't give you emotions. It calls on you to explore an affect, something in yourself mm -hmm. that you don't have a name for. Yeah. And then, um, yep. but to say that you, if you feel nothing watching Stalker, if you feel nothing, well, maybe it's just not the right time or maybe you're just not allowing it to do its thing. I think Stalker's doing mm -hmm. its thing whether you invest in it or not, it's up to the viewer to choose to go in or not. It's like the haunted house at the fairground. Yeah. All those ghosts and goblins are in there. You just choose whether you're going to go in or not. That's about the only yeah. decision you have to make. If you go in, then you experience it. If you go into the zone, you'll experience it. And there's a weird parallel between a certain skeptical type of viewer and the clients in the film, the, the writer, especially the writer. He's oh, yeah. this cynical, skeptical viewer watching Stalker and resisting what it is trying to present. Basically just trying to always not see it. But at the same time, he's the one in the end who does see it, I would argue. Um, oh, that's an interesting interpretation. 
he's the one at the end who he, the, the camera isolates him at the end when the stalker go when his wife fetches him at the bar this really comical scene at the end of the, they've gone through this crazy wild adventure in which nothing happened and they end up back at the <laughs> bar where they started and then the stalker's wife comes to get him like almost like that typical kind of russian scene of the wife going to get her husband at the local and bring him home drunk so she comes and gets him and then when stalker leaves with his family the camera isolates the writer and stays on him and the writer looks like he's about to fall to tears and yet the writer was the most cynical and uh, the one who resisted the uh, what the stalker was trying to do or trying to say about the zone uh the writer was the most resistant to it in a sense uh, the scientist couldn't even see it though the professor for him, um, it was just a problem. Yeah, for, for, for that he had to solve. That he had to solve, and in fact, the professor's solution to the problem was to bomb the zone, to bomb the room, and destroy it, to destroy yeah. it. But but there is that parallel between how the film can be viewed and how those characters view the zone, even as they enter it. So the film in itself is the zone, you know, or or maybe the zone can be interpreted as a metaphor for the artwork, you know, the truly visionary artwork in which it's like the magical forest or the magical garden where you find what you bring in. What you are is what you'll see. Uh, but the point is that, that there is a certain danger in visionary art, that if you take it very seriously, it's funny because I'm coming at this from my own experience. I watched Stalker when I was in my early 20s as well. I was living in Toronto, but I was hanging out with a, a gang of guys, a few of which have had serious mental health issues afterwards. I'm not saying it's because of Stalker. It's just the Stalker was a big part of that chapter, that time uh, where we were exploring some crazy ideas and we didn't all come out of it intact. Uh, so I, I, Stalker has packed didn't, a lot. Didn't come out of that period of your life intact, you mean? Right. Exactly. And uh, so that period of your life itself seeming to be something of a zone, capital Z zone. Yeah. Strewn with incomprehensible artifacts and possibilities of tremendous change and also tremendous personal destruction. Right. Exactly. So that that's Stalker for me is is pure, pure cinema. It's um Well this is this is something that interests me is the very idea of the capital Z zone or I should say for our Canadian listeners, capital Z zone. You know, it's interesting because for me, the, 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 just that magical word, zone. And in Russian, it's almost the same word, right? Zona, I think. Zona, yeah. yeah. Um, something about the, maybe even just the resonance of the word, but it creeps into my thinking. It creeps into, like in this conversation where the zone, it starts to creep right? It's no longer just kind of an inside the fiction thing we're talking about. Now we're talking about a stage of your life that itself was kind of a zone. Yesterday, I went for a walk with my dog in a part of Bloomington that I never walk in. And I was walking by all these weird, abandoned, light industrial parks and these crazy houses with broken windows and so on. And I, I started imagining that I was just walking through the zone, that I was taking my walk with my dog through his own, thinking about zones, thinking about the artwork as a zone. It's just an endlessly productive, for one thing, an endlessly productive metaphor for all kinds of stuff. Yeah. But I think that also the zone is itself a metaphor for all kinds of things in our life. These charged fields 
of there are these points in our life where we seem to be walking through a field of immense creative potential. And when I say creative, I'm not talking about, you know, the possibility of doing creative work, although that certainly can be a, a side effect. No, I'm talking about like a place or a space, a time, a space of time, a time of space, whatever, like a sort of enclosure in which all kinds of things can happen and certain kinds of things become possible that aren't possible anywhere else. And also places that have themselves a kind of logic that envelops you almost like a coat when you're in it, that it becomes second nature, it becomes your second skin. But the moment you're outside of it, you are completely helpless, powerless to convey to anybody who hasn't already been there what it was you found yeah. there. Do you Absolutely. see what I'm saying? I, I, yeah, I love what you're saying. The word zone, I looked up the etymology before because I, I realized I had no idea where that word came from. And it comes from a, a Greek word, zoni, uh, which became the Latin zona, which means a girdle, a belt. So there's an idea of the circle in the zone, obviously, a kind of perimeter or a kind of, a, yeah, a circle that's always, the zone always implies a center. There's always a center to the zone and the zone emanates from the center. It seems to me, or at least that's one way of looking at it. Yeah. And it is certainly the case in Stalker that there's that room, that building in the middle. And they imported that into Annihilation too, that, that lighthouse. Yes. Um, so there's this, this center, this room where wishes come true. But to get to this room, you have to cross the zone. You have to get to the center of the zone. And the zone has all kinds of rules. And a zone to me, if I think about what a zone is, like how do we use the word? It has a military or jurisdictional kind of connotation. Yeah. Um, like a zone is a place where you change when you enter it. You have to abide by its rules. It changes your agency. It changes mm -hmm. what kind of agent you are. Like a zo like zoning laws change what can exist within a space. Yeah. A zone in the military sense is a place where the laws of the land are suspended and the laws of the military come to bear. I see. You know, become, become almost physical laws that cannot be... I mean, the, the penalty for breaking the rules in a zone are often death, right? right. Area 51. Um, there's something about that. It reminds me of the idea of the magic circle. And the connection with the work of art is like, to make a work of art, you create a magic circle which contains the laws of the work. And the laws of the work have nothing to do with the laws of everyday life. It's, it's separate. And a work is only, it only answers to its own internal imminent logic. And it's the same with magic. You know, in magic, you make the magic circle in order to suspend the common sense, kind of like everybody knows kind of laws of, of the everyday in order to make new potentialities possible or in order to bring new potentialities into being so yeah it is a, it's a powerful word and you were talking about walking when i take a walk you man it's crazy how close my experience of walking is to what tarkovsky's showing us here with the stalker yeah. like i mentioned yeah. last time the cursor like this I, I never plan a route when i walk i just follow this internal logic that's based on how i feel where the wind's coming from a successful walk for me is a walk where I enter the zone and I see something. Sometimes I say, I think that every time I take a real walk, I see something miraculous. It could just be some like 
you know, it could just be like a telephone pole that's just like leaning on its on its side a bit, or it could be just a tree or a, a woodpecker or whatever. But there's something about it because I've entered into this zone, this internal zone where I'm reading the world as signs. Let's say it's it's just as miraculous as seeing something truly supernatural or like a like a zombie ambling down the sidewalk or something like that. You know. back next week for part two of JF and Phil's conversation about Stalker. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also find us on Twitter. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.